HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Today we'd like to send a special thank you to the following restaurants for supporting No Goat Left Behind, Corsino, and Bento. Show your support at these restaurants by ordering one of the menu items featuring goat. Goat is the most eaten protein in the entire world, yet in the U.S. we import most of our goat. Our dairy farms are forced to kill some male goats at birth because there's no market for them. Help make a change. Support No Goat Left Behind. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Happy Monday afternoon and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd. Uh, I'm your host, Anne Saxelby. We are on the Heritage Radio Network, which you can get at heritageradionetwork.com. And my co-host and producer is Sophie Schlesinger. Hello. Hello. Um, So today, uh, we're going to just jump right in. Um, We are really, really happy and honored and excited to have um, Christian and Lisa Seeger with us on the phone from Texas. Um, Christian and Lisa own a farm called Blue Heron Farm and have been doing pretty extraordinary work um, with all of the wildfires that have been happening down in Texas, um, uh, doing some really great farm relief uh, work actually through cheese. Um, so without further ado, I think we should just start uh, start right in. Um, Christian and Lisa, are you with us? Yes. Um, I had to pick up, so it's just Lisa now, but I've got Christian here next to me. Oh, fantastic. Okay. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you guys so much for taking time out to be on the show. I know you're extremely busy. Well, you know, all farmers are, but we need off time too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so can you tell us a little bit about, um, about your farm and, uh, and how you guys got started? And then we'll jump into the, the work you've been doing more recently. Sure. We um, were both city kids that were, um, well, I was intensely unhappy with the work I was doing. And Christian was a roadie and so was gone a lot. And back in 2006, we kind of decided we were done doing the things we were doing and we were looking for the next thing. And Christian always had this joke that one day we were going to have a goat farm, 
And um, <laughs> as, a, as an intensely raised city kid, I just always ignored it and thought it was funny. And then one day we kind of thought maybe we'd get a goat farm. <laughs> and um, it started that I bought him a class. We, live, we lived in Houston then, and we're outside of Houston now. And um, there was a leisure learning class, community class, about raising goats. So I bought him the class for his birthday thinking this would put an end to it. We'd take the <laughs> class, and, and the idea would be over. And um, just the opposite happened. Within a couple weeks after taking the class, we were looking at listings online. And on Halloween 2006, we closed on a little 10-and-a-half-acre property. And by December, we had goats and started raising them. And basically, our mission was we're both really passionate about uh, food politics and um, we had read Omnivore's Dilemma, really the Labor Day weekend before we started looking at farms and realized that we needed to put down the book and start changing the food system. So that's how he got the city girl out into the country with goats and uh, took us about a year, year and a half to get legal. The licensing in Texas is pretty tough on dairy. Hmm. And by spring 2008, we were full-time farmers with no other income. We um, have a small herd. We raise our goats sustainably. We have about 25 goats. We milk about 20, and we turn all of the milk into fresh cheese. We make shev and feta, and then we also make cajeta, which is a Mexican goat milk caramel. Oh, my God. That stuff is so great. <laughs> so it's ridiculous. And then we recently started adding bourbon to it because really at the <laughs> nice. point you're reducing milk to just sugar and fat, you should add booze, we think. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so we've been making all three of those things and selling them as our sole income source um, basically since early 2008, but been, have been on the farm and farming since 2006. Wow. Wow. That's, that's amazing. That's so impressive. I feel like, you know, for most people that, that, that leap of faith, you know, it takes a while. Yeah. Kudos to you guys for just jumping right in and saying, you know, committing yourselves to doing it. I think that's the only way things like that can get done. I mean, people say they have these dreams and, and if you have an escape hatch, you're probably going to take it because it's not easy. So we just decided to burn the boat on the beach and, you know, <laughs> jump in. Burn the boat on the beach yeah, and, like and turn to the goats. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, well, let's get into, um, you know, this this other work that you guys have been doing. Um, we know, actually, uh, we've all been hearing in the news that um, the weather in Texas has been pretty crazy this year, um, droughts and then also the wildfires. Um, so can you tell us about how that's affected your farm um, and, uh, and what you guys have been doing uh, with your neighbors to, to bring them in? You bet. So the drought, um, you know, the drought really is the biggest problem we're facing here. Um, when they're looking into the records and reading tree rings and doing whatever scientists do to figure this out, they're saying this is the worst drought since the 1500s. Wow. I mean, it's just chronic, decimating drought. And um, so farming is hard anyway in these kind of conditions. And... You know, luckily we have a small sustainable farm, which is a lot more resilient than the giant industrial farms, which are going under pretty rapidly. But, you know, we were doing okay, kind of getting along. And then um, Labor Day weekend, the fire started in our area. Previously, there was a huge fire out in Bastrop, which is kind of between us and Austin. Mm -hmm. And um, we'd been seeing what was happening there, but a lot of that is forest and not very much farmland. I mean, it's still devastating, obviously, but it... It wasn't affecting a lot of farmers. Um, on Labor Day Monday, I was actually off-farm running errands, and on my way home from the highway, I could see this huge plume of smoke. And I'm not really good at direction, but I looked at it and thought, oh, that's our town on fire. And I was still about 30, 40 miles away at the time. Um, so I called Christian. This was Labor Day Monday. And I said, hey, I, I think our town's on fire. <laughs> and he's like, what are you talking about? 
and it turned out our town was on fire. Um, oh. He went outside and looked, and based on where we were on our farm, it looked like it was maybe five miles away. The town we live in, it's extremely tiny. We're 45 miles northwest of Houston, but we're so small it's not even a town. But oddly enough, there are three grade-A goat dairies in our little town field store. Hmm. And where the plume of smoke was looked suspiciously close to the other two who happened to be friends of ours also. So Christian called up both farms and said, hey, step out your door and tell me if you guys are in some kind of trouble. At that time, everyone, we'd had a previous fire in June that was put out successfully after a couple days. And so nobody was really all that amped up about this, but everyone kind of kept their eye on it. Um, By that evening, though, things got really bad, and they both called back and said, yeah, not only is it getting close, the sheriff just came to the door and said, we have to go now. So we took in both um, both grade-A dairy farmers and all of their goats. So by 7 p.m. on Labor Day Monday, we had our normal farm of 29 goats, um, had uh, goats coming in nonstop until by 10 o'clock there were over 80 additional goats that don't belong to us. Wow. Um, when it first started, you know, we just didn't have a plan. It was just get, get the goats out of the way of the fire and the people. And so... Our farm is pretty well fenced and cross fenced, and we put all of the incoming goats into one, like two, two to three acre pasture, and just thought, well, you know, we'll figure it out. That was nighttime; they'd already been milked, and we'd see what happened in the morning. So Tuesday morning, you know, everyone has to be milked. If you stop milking a lactating animal, it stops lactating. So, you know, it was not an option not to milk these hundred goats that were now at the farm. Oh my God. <laughs> so that morning. Um, we milked ours, you know, kind of the normal way we do, and we have our machine and our dairy building and all that. But all the refugee goats, as we took to calling them, um, got milked out in the field, and then it, it was tragic and awful, but we dumped all that milk because we just didn't know what to do with it at that point. And at that point, all we were thinking is just save the animals and save these people's business by keeping the animals lactating. Right. Keeping them milking, exactly. Yeah, and um, so then that evening... And nobody, you know, you, you don't know how, how long something like this is going to last. So that evening, we come to another milking, and we're milking these 100 goats again and kind of freaking out because our operation is so small, we run our entire farm off two refrigerators. You know, we make cheese every three days, and that cheese gets sold every three days. I mean, there's just no, there's no excess. So milk got dumped that Tuesday night also, and we were all just really kind of sick about it. And um, by Wednesday, we realized, you know, we've got a problem. We, we can't keep this milk. And we can't keep throwing it away. I mean, we've saved the problem that, yeah, we can keep the goats in milk, but, but now what? And, you know, farmers are like most of America, and most farmers live paycheck to paycheck, mm. except that farmers don't get a paycheck. So Tuesday we had to miss a market. Had I left the farm, they wouldn't have let me come home. We were already kind of in the evacuation area. We just hadn't evacuated because um, we had taken in 100 extra animals. Um, so that Wednesday morning after we had milked, it's about 11 or noon, and I'm looking at these gallons and gallons of milk thinking, I can, we just can't throw this away again. And we'd already fed our pigs as much as they could hold, and we're like, what are we going to do with it? And I decided we've got the licensed facility. We're already cheesemakers. I'm going to take all the milk from all three farms and just start making cheese around the clock, and we're going to just make fresh chef. We're not going to mess with anything else. We're just 24 hours a day going to process milk. And so starting that Wednesday, that's what we did. Every 12 hours, we started a new batch of cheese and um, just kind of <laughs> kept going for as long as, I mean, it ended up being um, another four or five days before it was all over and people could go back to their farms. But when we started, we just had no idea. And we still ran into the problem that 
well, we still only have two refrigerators. And yeah, you can take a gallon of milk, which is eight pounds, and turn it into a tiny little one pound of cheese, pound and a half of cheese. But even then, we were running out of refrigerator space. So we use Twitter and Facebook, and um, luckily we have a pretty good network in Houston of chefs and customers, and we got people the word that, hey, we're making this community cheese, and we have to move it. Every 12 hours, we got to move it. Um, we had a store that we were already selling through that sold a lot of it. A couple of our restaurants stepped up and bought, you know, 10 pounds each of cheese. And basically, we're just kind of in a triage mode where people who could get into the farm after some of the roadblocks were lifted would come pick up a cooler cheese and bring it to Houston and sell it for us. <laughs> that wow. is unbelievable. So how many pounds of cheese were you making during that? Well, it's interesting. Normally, at our peak, we make maybe 100 pounds, 110 pounds a week, and that's in our peak season, which was this, you know, towards the end of summer. Right. We were making 60 pounds a day. Wow. Which, for me, was just an insane amount. I mean, in our low season, um, because we are se- seasonal and sustainable, we might not make 60 pounds in two weeks. Right. So to make it in a day was kind of freaky. Wow. Wow. That is so intense. And so was it, um, since you're the cheesemaker of the bunch, was it just you making the cheese or were you able to kind of pass your, um, you know, pass some of the, um, cheese making burden along to others or were you well, kind of, you wanted to oversee the process since you yeah, were the expert? One of the other farms does make cheese of the two other farms. Um, one of them sells milk and yogurt and kefir and they also do make cheese. And then the other farm sells their milk to an artisan cheesemaker, but they weren't able to do so at that time. So even though I technically wasn't the only cheesemaker, I'm also kind of a control freak and just didn't let anyone in my kitchen to make cheese. I hear so, that a lot from cheesemakers. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it, that must be something you, you have to be. So I decided to make all the cheese. Um, and the interesting thing is on our farm, we have one breed of goat. We only keep Nubian goats uh, because of the character of their milk. They give this beautiful, sweet milk with tons of butter fat and it makes in my opinion it makes just an exceptional cheese and they don't give the most amount of milk per breed but i think the quality is just unbeatable when we had in these 80 extra goats they were every breed in demand and um, the milk character was really different and so the first batch didn't actually turn out very good (laughs) i don't even know how to say this it was crap (laughs) yeah um (laughs) So that went to the pigs, and then I felt this tremendous guilt having wasted everyone's milk. So um, we had made one batch previously before the fire started, and I ripped all the labels off of it and put the community label on it and sold it so we could get some money to these other farmers. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Well, you know, yeah, you think about most cheesemakers have to worry about the the variables in their milk, the components and everything changing on a day-to-day basis, you know. Just from what the animals are eating, the weather, et cetera. Right. I mean, to be thrown into that situation where all of a sudden, yeah, the entire makeup of your herd and all the milk being yeah. so different, that's that's just absolutely wild. Yeah, I mean, flavor and texture and everything. And the texture is the biggest thing for us. So it just, you know, the techniques I had developed over three plus years just didn't apply to this milk. So we had to tweak and the learning curve had to be fast because, you know, I couldn't, right. couldn't afford to lose anymore. It's really funny because I kind of, I think of myself more as a farmer than a cheesemaker. I'm a farmer who makes cheese. And, you know, we make fresh cheeses, which are not technically difficult. And I've always had this running joke that I've always said, sorry to be crude, but any a-hole can make chev. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the hardest part is milking the goat. Yeah. And then I ruined that batch, and I'm like, gosh, maybe... Maybe you actually do have to have the skill to do this. <laughs> Cheese making is, I, yeah, it's a constantly humbling <laughs> profession. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, well, so tell um, tell our listeners what's the what was the name the the, the name that you came up with was so clever for this uh, this chev. Right. So our town is called Field Store, and we called it Field Store Fire Chev. And the label I made had a photograph taken from our bedroom window the first Wednesday of this whole experience, and it literally was our town aflame. I mean, it's it's bright red. And that was the one night when we really thought, oh, my God, we're going to have to leave, and we're going to have to leave 100 animals here. But um, things didn't work out that way. It was good. So we called it Field Store Fire Chev, and underneath um, I used my – uh, marketing background to come up with the clever disaster relief never tasted so good. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I actually I came across two photos, one of the the cheese and the packaging that you guys had and then one actually of that that photo of the fire. If you don't mind, I'd love to put them on our our blog so the listeners can see. It's really pretty pretty wild to see it. Sure, please do. Yeah, my husband took that photo from our bedroom window Wednesday night. And the funniest thing is he's standing up looking at the window and I was like what's going on? Is the fire getting close? And he's like, don't get out of bed. Yeah. Well, what's going on? He's like, don't get out of Just bed. And right after we took that photo, though, we really were at the point where I was like, oh, well, that's not so bad. And we closed the drapes and went to bed. Wow. <laughs> I really can't even imagine. Yeah. So, well, let's talk a little bit about, I mean, the, what you guys did is absolutely incredible for many reasons. But um, can you tell us a little bit about the logistics of actually getting these animals from the two farms to your farm? Yeah. And, you know, what you guys had to think about and deal with in terms of, um, you know, disease and stuff that, yeah. Can, yeah. that can happen when you uh, cross different herds? Well, so one of the things is because our farm is so tiny and um, the way we farm, we don't even own a truck. You know, Christian and I, when we need to move a goat, we move it in the back of our Volvo station wagon. <laughs> We're just not prepared for something like this. Yeah. Um, the other farms are a little more prepared, and they're a little larger. So they each had, you know, a pickup truck or a van and a single animal trailer meant for hauling a couple goats at a time. So both farms made several trips while they were still able to. And um, Swede Farm, which was, is the other one that has the larger dairy and that makes cheese, actually had to leave a few of their animals behind the first couple days. And they left some of their bucks, figuring the money wasn't in the bucks. And um, they left a couple babies, and they just they'd run out of time and that ability to get them over. So when everyone came in, we put them all in one field. And we did have this nervous thing, because biosecurity is, is a huge issue. I mean, diseases can go through a herd, you know, in seconds. And to put that many animals in close quarters is a little nerve-wracking. The upside for us is we know both of these farms, and we know their animal history, and we, we've been to their farms, and we didn't really feel like we were, they were going to be carrying something that was going to hurt our goats. Mm-hmm. But it's still in the back of your mind. You just All the books tell you, don't do this, don't do this. But it just wasn't an option not to do it. So the first, the first night, they were all in one field together, and eventually we sorted out one herd and put it with ours and then left the larger farms all by themselves. But... Um, the milking is crazy, too. I mean, we're scaled to milk 20 goats, and we have a milk room that holds seven goats at a time and a machine that milks two goats at a time. So chores that took take us an hour took three hours every day to milk the goats, you know, right. up, you know, three hours in the morning and three hours in the evening. You know, for us, an eight-hour day, there's a whole lot of downtime when you only have 20 goats, you know, that you can pursue other things, other things on the farm. But this was six hours of milking a day plus the cheese-making. Wow. And by Wednesday, when we figured it all out, we, we got into a good routine. We decided, you know, we'd milk them by herd, and the owners were there. Because in addition, Swede Farm, in addition to their goats, um, they're a family of 14. 
Um, it's the mom and dad and 12 kids, and we wow. have all of them at our farm. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And where was everybody staying? Did you have tents, or did, um, was it just like bunk beds, or how, how was that working? The, the first night, there was only one night when everyone had to be in the house. The smoke was so thick that we just couldn't have anyone outside camping or sleeping anywhere outside. So that night was a little crazy. I mean, we put a bunch of children on arrow beds and... I think the kids thought it was fantastic, but um, <laughs> and we have a guest bedroom, and we have a 1973 Airstream that we've been renovating, so we managed to split everybody up, and then after that, one of our Facebook friends, and actually a personal friend of mine, too, but who saw what was going on on Facebook, brought out tents, so for the rest of the time, at least, the kids could pretend they were camping. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. It's amazing. We, yeah, and our farmhouse has one bathroom. So, like, the, just oh the mechanics of having that many people was kind of crazy. The goats, you know, we knew how to deal with goats. But right. Kristen and I don't have children. Like, for us, that was a way bigger adjustment than having yeah. goats. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, the whole thing that keeps striking me throughout this is like how amazing Facebook and Twitter really is, you know, for, you know, all these situations. I mean, I guess you hear about, you know, all the protests in Egypt that happened. Same thing. And it's it's such a an amazing thing that you're able to galvanize, you know, such a great community with that. When I when I told people we were taking in the goats before we ever realized we were going to make cheese. We started getting things like, do you need anything? Do you need anything? And we actually had two of our friends, um, customers of ours um, that came and brought bales of hay. Because our, our thing was we couldn't leave. I mean, the, the right. roadblocks were off and on. But if we left, we couldn't take the chance that we couldn't come back home again. So we had two different people come with hay, which, again, we were talking about we're in this tremendous drought right now. So hay is so expensive here. A round bale of hay is $100. I mean, it's, it's a huge endeavor. And normally we don't feed a lot of hay. Um, we're feeding more now because of the drought. But, you know, we can we only need to bale a month when it's our goats. And we'd had goats here for two days, and we had we were running out of things to eat. So we had two people bring hay, and then they wouldn't take money for it. I was like, we have money. We just don't have the means to get off the farm. Right. But the free use of people's time and effort and, um, I mean, just, yeah, just by saying on Facebook, we had two people show up with bales of hay. It was incredible. And that's how we got PR, too. People saw it, and people who do PR for a living gave their time for free to help us. I mean, it was just, it was just insane. Wow. And yeah, like you were saying, especially when you can't move, you know, to be able to have some sort of outlet to get, get out in, in some way or another to other people. And, and and, I mean, you know, for a while, nobody could come in either. I mean, there was one day when we were just on total lockdown, but then we learned all the back ways and living in the country, we knew where the roadblocks were and weren't. And so we would direct people the back ways to get to us. One of our customers, um, he's a personal chef whose business is called Single Man's Kitchen. But this guy alone, Jeremy Goodwin, shifted like 800 containers of cheese for us. Wow. Oh, sorry, $800 worth of cheese, Christian says. That's 80 containers. Wow. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's just one person who, you know, he didn't have anything to gain from this. He just did this amazing thing for us. And that's what the whole week was, was the amazing community, both our small community and the larger community of Houston. I mean, people are so good to their farmers now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, uh, everyone's realizing more and more all the time how, how important, you know, the farms are to their, their, their lives. You know, people were really divorced from that for a long time, but, um, 
it's becoming more apparent all the time how much these uh all of these things, the weather, the changing climate and food security and all that stuff, you know, you really have to, yeah, you better support your farmer because if yeah. you don't, yeah. Right. You're going <laughs> to eat. eat from China and they want to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> no farms, no food. Exactly. Um, so so how, how are things now? Are things kind of uh, settled down a little bit? Um, you know, what's the, what's the climate like and what was the damage? You know, how, how are those other two farms? Did they actually have s- significant damage to their property? They, neither of them got hit by the fire in the most tremendous of ironies. Um, Swede Farm, when they left their house the second time, they were able to go back. These, these are the ones with the large family and the large goat population. They were able to get back two different times during that week to their place. And the second time they went back, they put sprinklers on the roof, which is a very common thing to do in a situation like this in case the fire gets close. And unbelievably, it leaked through their roof and wrecked their floors inside the house. So they have flood damage from the fire, which um, is horrible and ironic. Um, The other farm was the closest, but it never got more than a couple hundred feet from her place, and everything is still standing. So... All the goats were able to go home just um, like eight days after this started. The, the following Monday, the goats were able to go back to their homes. And the, the one downside has been the stress of moving them. Goats are hugely creatures of habit, and they need routine. And so they just settled into a routine at our place when they right. had to go home. And so everybody's milk is down. You know, ours is down, theirs is down. And some of that is seasonal. I mean, now it's fall, and we're going to decline anyway. Mm-hmm. But just the stress of moving and having the routines changed. Um, and then, oh, yeah, we had a couple unplanned breedings, Christian reminded me. <laughs> Eventually the bucks were moved over, and there was a small moment where they were uncontained. So <laughs> they, they saw their window of opportunity. <laughs> yeah. They're like, look at that Boy. fire over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there was some cross-farm breeding, uh, you know. We did our best to prevent it. <laughs> hey, you know, a, a little bit of extra genetic diversity, yeah, you know. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't hurt anybody. Um, so we'll tell uh, our, our listeners, uh, what is, do you guys have a website or a blog or something where they can, uh, they can follow up and learn more about your farm? Sure. We have a, we have a little bit of each. Our website is blueherontexas.com. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of the general gist of, of, what our farm is like, and then we're on both Facebook and Twitter, and this whole the whole timeline is still there on Facebook. Um, we're Blue Heron Farm on Facebook. Um, contrary to Facebook's rules, we're on as a person, so um, you, you don't have to friend us. We let anybody see it, but you can scroll all the way back from when it started and, and really get the timeline over the, the many days. And then we're also on Twitter, and that's Blue Heron Farm TX. Okay. Great. 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 Yeah, no, I would I would suggest to anybody yeah. listening that you check it out because it's it's like Sophie was saying, the photos and just the yeah, to, to actually see it documented is pretty pretty incredible. For for us the, the week is kind of a blur in retrospect and that's how I'm able to catalog what happened. I mean everything happened at an emotional intensity. You know, we had the emotional amp turned up to eleven sure, the whole time. Yeah. And so you just don't remember anything. It was a blur. And so like as we were kind of dissecting it because you have to plan for the next time. We just used Facebook to figure out what had happened. <laughs> wow. And so are there any kind of, um, you know, efforts underway in the community to kind of do different things for fire prevention in the future? I mean, I'm sure there's a limited amount of things you can do given that there's just this terrible drought, but right. is I there mean, anything going on that way? I, there isn't really. I mean, it, 
part of part of this problem, the drought has killed so many trees. Um, in Houston, which is a city, um, there they say 666 million trees are going to wow. die because of this drought. I mean, it's an absurd number, and that's in the city. That's not even rural. So one of the things they're trying to do is log out these dead trees as soon as they die rather than have all this standing fuel for fires. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, um, I guess I didn't really explain a lot, but the two other goat farms really kind of are in the woods, and we're in pasture, and that's part of how we ended up the evacuation zone is there's just not a lot of fuel when you have big open pasture. So mm-hmm. as far as our place is concerned, there's nothing we can do, but the other farms are definitely thinning out their dead trees just to make sure that, you know, they're in a piney woods and the, the resin from pine is explosive. If, you, if you've ever lit a Christmas tree after Christmas, I mean, it's, it's insane. Mm-hmm. So, that, you know, there, there is a lot of that activity try, trying to figure it out, and then, you know, they've built some fire breaks in places, but... I think the bigger thing is the drought. I mean, soon we're going to run out of water. People who are on wells that are no deeper than 180 feet are going to run out of water. Um, so I think, you know, you just it's a triage thing. You have to deal with what's in front of you at the moment. And I don't know that people are going to have enough rest to even consider the next fire because soon what's going to be in their face is we don't have any water. <laughs> yeah. Are you, is that something that you guys are contending with uh, yourselves? Um, we, for... Three months watered, this is so insane. We have one little well for our home, and it's got a home-based pump. And we had a, a sprinkler going 24 hours a day to grow grass for our goats. And um, after three months, we decided we might should think again about that because we don't know what the water table is going to hold. Um, I think for us, the worst-case scenario is we can get our well um, deepened, mm. um, although there's waiting lists now because there are all kinds of people hitting their limit. We're in a place where the water table is not so bad now. Up north of us, near Dallas, people are already in trouble, people with cattle especially. Wow. Wow. Oh, man. Well, um, unfortunately, we have run out of time. This always happens. A half hour goes by way too fast. But um, it has been such a pleasure talking with you and such an inspiration to hear about what you guys have done. And, um, yeah, thank you for sharing your stories and for and for being awesome in general. <laughs> well, thank you guys for um, getting the attention out there. And hopefully, you know, if, if anybody else has some kind of emergency, it'll make them think how to band together with their neighbors. Yeah, absolutely. 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 Farmers work together. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, well, uh, we will be back next week with another episode of Cutting the Curd. And uh, thanks for listening. Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the Cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. The following message has been brought to you by Taste Brooklyn. Our city's finest chefs partner with farmers and local vineyards next to the Green Market for an extraordinary outdoor culinary festival. Try exquisite delicacies using locally grown seasonal delights on the plaza outside Brooklyn's Borough Hall. Top chefs and artisans will offer sumptuous fare paired with premium wines, all to empower our neediest children to get healthy. The mighty FDNY and DSNY harbor their own culinary masters in uniform. They will cook off against the pros. Sample delicious cuisine without stressing over a reservation while supporting a worthy cause. Taste Brooklyn's Field to Fork Outdoor Culinary Festival, Saturday, October 15, 2011, from 11.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. 
Learn more and buy tickets at tastesofbrooklyn.blogspot.com. That's T-A-S-T-E-S-O-F brooklyn.blogspot.com. As a part of National Food Day, St. John's Bread and Life, Brooklyn's innovative and life-saving food service program based in Bedford-Stuyvesant, is inviting Brooklyn chefs and purveyors to learn about how the organization is marrying the procurement of old-fashioned, locally grown organic produce with the latest technology to deliver healthy, cost-effective meals to those in need. St. John's Bread and Life, located at 795 Lexington Avenue, will hold an open house on Monday, October 24th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Visit www.foodday.org to sign up for the event. This is a public service announcement from Sea to Table and Slow Food NYC. On October 11th, sustainable seafood distributor Sea to Table will join Slow Food New York City to host an event celebrating the bounty of local New York seafood. The event, Slow You Sustainable Sashimi, will feature a tasting of four fish species from local Montauk waters. The event will take place on Tuesday, October 11th, from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Institute of Culinary Education, 50 West 23rd Street in Manhattan. Tickets are $25 for Slow Food members, $35 for non-members. Visit slowfoodnyc.org for more information about this event and how to get tickets.